Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us today. We hope to have a great conversation with our guest, uh, founder and CEO of the Rafa Institute, Travis Claybrooks. Um, our discussion today is going to center on the vital importance of Black nonprofit leaders. And as it is uh, Black History Month, we on the last day of Black History Month. I think this is a very important discussion, obviously, because I am a Black nonprofit leader, but also based on you know the discussions that we have on this podcast, um, we have outlined historical trauma as one of the main drivers or root cause of many of the social issues that nonprofits want to address. And historically, nonprofits have been led um, by white people, historically wealthier um, individuals, and even in the way that it is funded um, with the larger field of philanthropy, there is a great deal of white saviorship going on there. And so um, when we think about Black nonprofit leaders, um, what we find, especially in the news, is that they are often underinvested in, they are lacking in support, they are more likely to have contentious relationships with their board. Um, overall, just a lack of support, especially as they are pivotal um, in the role of addressing those social ills because they are very much connected to the community and may even have more perspective when it comes to solving the issues that we want to solve. And so, Travis, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, please introduce yourself to our audience. Let our audience um, know anything that they should know about you, about the Roth Institute. Well, thank you, Ingrid. Uh, thank you for having me. It is, uh, I am deeply humbled and honored uh, to be in uh, this space with, with you, um, someone who I have uh, respected for a very long time and continue thank to have. Thank respect. you so much. Um, well, as, as you said, I'm Travis Claybrook's uh, founder and CEO of Rafah Institute. Rafah mm -hmm. is a Hebrew word that means to heal. Um, and uh, it's an action word, uh, very closely related to the Hebrew word Shabbat in terms of uh, how they are connected to one another. And it really carries this connotation around not just healing, but pausing, taking Sabbath, taking rest in order to heal. And that's really the the um, picture of our of our work. We invite people to a space through programs and services where they can pause, gather the resources that they need to heal, and then hopefully create a circumstance, or what we call a circumstance of justice, where they then can move from that place of healing into thriving, um, living long lives that are healthy that are free of early death um, and that involve wealth and access to continued access to resources. Um, yeah, that's, that's a little, I mean, I talk a little bit about how I got there, uh, but yeah, that's, that's uh, the well, important. Yeah. Let's talk about that. I mean, even in our, our personal relationship, we connected um, through some work that I was doing here in Nashville around 
aces and i think i think it was actually aces and toxic masculinity i don't i got into a lot of trouble for that topic by the way but um but you know tell us how you got into this work what about the adverse childhood experiences study connected with you and just you know overall just why do you do what you do yeah I, when I, when i first heard about aces i was like oh my god this is the this is the modern day gospel everybody <laughs> needs to hear everybody this needs to hear this <laughs> everybody needs to hear this that's like, that's exactly the thought that went through my mind um because it explained so much yeah. um, explained so much of it gave language for what we and i say we in really a you know a collective community sense what we already knew inherently and anecdotally. Um, uh, we, we And so, yeah, it just gave language to it. It gave, it gave the research to it. It gave the data to it. Um, it mm. helped us understand, helped me understand not just what was happening in terms of the, the impact and what happens in the aftermath of trauma, but helped to understand what trauma does to the human being and mm. why it produces uh, outcomes, behaviors, health impacts, psychological, psycho-emotional, psychosocial impacts, and so forth. So yeah, I was like, man, everybody needs needs to know this. You know, I got into the, the, the work that I'm doing because I was wrestling at a point in my life with, um, you know, the question of uh, how how you know I have a background in law enforcement and you know how is it and why is it that people of color especially men of color are constantly in the presence of police to get shot mm. and this back in 2016 and you know through that through that wrestling i i was able to name that there are a lot of social drivers that land black people black men in particular in spaces where they're under-resourced and traumatized and mm -hmm. then driven to behaviors of survival, which tend to be illegal. And then the social answer to that is arrest, prosecute, incarcerate, and surveil. That's our response to, 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 that, to that picture. And I, um, I said to myself, what if and I looked at my own life growing up in North Nashville, I had, I was fortunate enough to have parents who gave me access to good housing, to private education, to, my mother was a nurse, so I had healthcare. Um, to, I, I, I was, a, you know, I, you know, she involved us in our church and so I had social, you know, support. Um, and, and, and both my parents worked, you know, so we had economic power a little bit, right? And I said to myself, Ingrid, that's why I did not end up in jail. That's it. That's the reason why I didn't end up in jail as a black man growing up in North Nashville. And then I said to myself, that should not be, a, those resources should not be a matter of love. Right. And our institute really today is formed to help intentionally mitigate the impact of ACEs to create the space where where people like Black people, people of color in particular, have access to these resources that reduce the trauma and that put people in a place of thriving. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is. It is unfortunate. But yes, when you think about what it looks like to just be lucky, I just happen to be born into this family or this socioeconomic status or um, happen to have the ability to go to a certain school. All of these factors are outliers in some areas, not the norm. And so, um, and I think this is kind of why Black nonprofit leaders are so important because even if with all of the privileges that we're outlining right now, um, being Black allows us to have a very clear window into experience and um, and we are very close to the issues yeah. and have the ability uh, or have the brain trust to solve problems, even if we don't have the support or the funding, um, we have the ideas uh, because we are so close to the issues. Um, and this kind of gets to where, you know, when I thought about what was the, the things that we should talk about together, um, that's why I landed here because I know how interesting it can be to be a nonprofit leader of color, um, especially in the landscape that, that we're in where you have, like I talked about before, maybe a lack of support or a lack of funding or um, in dealing with kind of this white savior um, environment that, that surrounds nonprofit and philanthropy uh, and navigating those spaces and still providing what we see as equitable um, services. And I think that Black nonprofit leaders have the ability to do that in a real way, um, maybe even more so than than white leaders, because of that, um, the range of experiences that we have. And so, you know, that's my perspective. But why do you think Black nonprofit leaders are so vital to the social movements um, of this country? Yeah. Um, so. You know, if you're a black nonprofit leader, you have inherited a structure that did not come into existence because of you, <laughs> right? Um, you know, if we think about, you know, section 501c3 of the Internal Revenue Code, this is a section of law that says that permits a person to um, to deduct from their income donations that they give to a charitable organization. So this permits this. Well, how did this come into existence? Well, very, 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 very wealthy people. You know, we're talking about Rockefellers and Rothschilds and and Carnegies and and so forth hated paying taxes. They hated giving so much of their money to the government. They couldn't stand it. And so this is how this is how section 501 subsection C paragraph 3 came into the code. That's how it became a law um very much in the same way that the National Guard emerged. We don't want our boys, you know, going into the military and so forth. And so we found ways to we, I say we, found ways to protect our children and our money from things and places we didn't want them to be. Well, and so, and so 
this industry of the nonprofit sector did not emerge out of some sense of benevolence around the condition of Black people. That is not how and why it came into existence. And so that's why I say we've inherited this, this, this framework and this structure because it does provide an opportunity to address issues that impact um, you know, the consequence of slavery in this country. <laughs> that is black people being poor and marginalized and oppressed, right? It gives a framework for that, yet it is still riddled with, and I use the word riddled intentionally, it is riddled with white leadership, white patriarchy, white money, white power, white control. Um, and so from that, and, and with that, and you talked a little bit about this, I think that, you know, there is a kind of proximity that Black leaders, that Black people have to their own experience, right? Um, and solving it. And there's a certain distance that white people have. And when I say white and Black, what I'm talking about is not the skin color, but I'm talking about the experience that you've had in this country, you know? So I'm talking about the experience of not being racialized and uh, um, uh, uh, bigoted against because of the color of your skin, or you have been. Um, so, you know, the importance of Black nonprofit leaders um, is salient because I am, I understand what we're going through and I have the ideas, I have the answers. And I have the skill as a human being, I have the skill, I've been blessed with the skill to be able to lead and to organize um, and to manage and to frame. I'm still learning, um, but but I have that. And so I am important to this. I, you are, you, and you, you know, the, the same could be, is said of you. Um, we are important to this work. In fact, importance is too small of a word. We are indispensable to this work. We are indispensable if we are going to use the framework of nonprofit and philanthropy and so forth to address and to partner with, you know, corporate interests and government interests to to address our our the problems that plague our our, our community. Yeah, I mean. And you're definitely speaking my language right now. Um, when we have talked before and just, you know, thinking through kind of what Black nonprofit leaders go through, um, and you brought up this industry, especially um, being kind of rooted in white patriarchy, and I definitely agree, but I want to say that this is one of the industries that is definitely a good blend of the white matriarchy as well, um, because if we think about that history, it was often those um, wives and and female relatives who were heading up the initiatives, and and they were always spoke of as being so charitable and well intentioned, um, while they were attempting to address these systemic issues that kind of their husbands were putting forth into the world. Um, and our discussions around this issue of charity and philanthropy is always about. Um, you know, assisting or helping others. And I think that this discussion, and, and this is another reason why Black leaders are so important, is that we should be changing this narrative to make it very clear that this is not an issue of charity or giving. Um, 
and kind of like what you were saying, this is not about, you know, we decided to have this type of tax structure for, from the goodness of our hearts kind of thing. This is about um, equity and reparations. And I think that that's what Black nonprofit leaders bring to the table, that they are talking about equity and reparations. They have a clear understanding that it's not that you're giving, but it's that you owe. Uh, and that um, when we look at it from that that angle, um, I, it makes it very interesting to have a Black nonprofit leader in the space because... Um, and and also that that connection of how they are least likely to be funded or to be supported in that way. Uh, it's very interesting that we have a clear bias around support and funding funneled to um, larger, um, more white-led institutions to do this work when um, we begin to see the narrative of that it's an issue of being old and not an equity this means that those who are in the position to fund should be prioritizing Black leaders um, and have a clear understanding of how their work is not about charity. It's not about giving um, or supporting even. It's about reparations and equity. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you are, you, are, you are spot on. You know, moving from... Um, that's the way I think about it, moving from charity to equity and moving from equity to justice. Um, and I think that's the, that's the way I hear you talking about reparations. Really, in my mind, it rings uh, justice. That, that, is, that is what is owed us as human beings. We, are, we owe each other justice uh, in all places. And where justice has suffered, it deserves to be healed. Um, in fact, that is our tagline at Refi Institute, justice is healing. Um, that is to say that, that our concepts of justice must be healed and our practice of justice must be healing in nature. Um, it should, wherever there is harm and oppression, then we don't have justice, to say it differently. Where charity is required and injustice exists, where charity is required and injustice exists. Yes. So and so we we must as a as a nation as as people as human beings have to think about why is charity necessary in this space whatever the space you're giving your money to why is why is my charity needed here and, and this isn't to deny the, the the need or the good of charity it is it is. It is required. Um, but we must further examine why. Why is it required in this space? What are the conditions that exist that make charity necessary? And we will inevitably come up with some sort of inequality, which will inevitably lead us to some inequity, which will inevitably lead us to some injustice. And I believe that that is, that's the frame in which we have to be thinking. That's how I think of it as a nonprofit leader. When I think about programming and designing programming and which programs we're going to execute, the partners that we, we choose to engage with, um, when I think about, and even more so when I think about board members now, um, and I've evolved in this a little bit, um, you know, I tried to, you know, early on, I tried to find the most charitable board members, you know, who had the most charity to give. And that hurt me. That hurt me as a leader and it hurt our organization. Um, 
when I went that route. Um, and so it's so much more important for me to think about board members who understand justice, who really are grappling with, with justice and how to leverage their resources and their power, their political power, their influence in the spaces of justice, because that's going to serve me, my nonprofit, and the people that we serve the best, whether you have a lot of money or not. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that is a lesson learned. That is something that I have learned over the last uh, two years, for sure, is that, you know, we often think that we want, the, we want more money uh, in the nonprofit space, but it's actually, um, it's a double-edged sword uh, that, um, you know, I don't want to be beholden especially to those who don't have a good understanding of justice, where uh, I don't want to find myself in a position where I have to make hard decisions to be able to stay funded versus being able to do what's, what's the right thing to do or focus on what's the right thing to focus on. And so I definitely understand that. And I think that that is one of the, you know, kind of the pitfalls of what we're discussing here. Um, one of the things that comes up for me when you, when you say this, is how often I've been in the space where people are talking about the return on investment discussion. And I get so angry. Um, and I realize that this is a discussion many people have that people feel comfortable having. And I feel as though they feel comfortable having those discussions because they are um, not oppressed. Um, because whenever discussions around return on investment, even in the very beginning, um, when we started having, you know, just the statistics of how much money can be saved, those statistics are eye-opening. And you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But then when we have to go to um, advocate for a policy or when we have to make discussions around an intervention, you know, we're, we're, we begin to um, monetize humanity. And, um, and then I find that when we have these discussions, and my understanding grows that I now I understand that this is, you know, people that are compelled by this return on investment discussion are um, are those that I don't exactly want to interact with, that I might not want at the table when we're having these discussions. And then I realize, you know, this is kind of the plight of a nonprofit leader of color that, um, you know, even having to sit in those kind of conversations is is draining and and I feel it's like a identity threat or is harmful to myself. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. The I mean, you return on this, the ROI, no, the ROI. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think what's challenging for me specifically about the return on investment um, demand is that there is so much of an investment in creating the problems that we're trying to solve. And so the whole thing becomes hypocritical to me. Like, don't talk to me, please, about whether what we are doing is effective. When you are not willing to talk to, when you're not willing to speak to power about how effective their oppression is. And, and, and so it, it, it is a drain. You know, my, my wife says, said to me, um, she said, um, um, 
you you have you have um, PBS. I would get it once a month. And now it's, it's my wife. This is what she says. I said, what? what are you talking about? What are you talking about? You have pre-board meeting syndrome. Right when it's time for board meeting, the day or two before, you are problems. You are all problems. And 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 she was I had so much anxiety and headache and because I was going into this space where I was trying to convince people of why they needed to be here and trying to explain to them why they were a board member and and trying to answer for them why they needed to ask their friends for money for this organization. <laughs> and it was a very, very hard space for me. And at the same time, what telling me that I need to reduce expenses, um, like cut our restorative justice diversion program, for example. And I'm and I'm looking like, you have no idea why you're here, do you? You really don't. Um, you don't even know why we're here. Um, and so it it's it is, you know, these questions around the, the, the demands that are placed upon nonprofit leaders to account for money don't match the the energy around how money is used to to create the problems that we are fighting and, and that that's what that's what is the is the sticky part for me if we spent half the energy grilling our political leaders grilling corporate leaders grilling you know other structures, our housing and banking structures around the problems that we're trying, our educational institutions around the problems that we're trying to solve in the same way that I get grilled at a board meeting, then <laughs> my job will be so much easier. It will be so much easier. And, and that is not to say, I know we got to go to break, but I, that is not to say that there does not need to be accountability around mm -hmm. impact, or, you know, with the work that we do and how we use, how we use the, the money that is given to us. Um, there is there's just a large hypocrisy. Yes. Yeah. Um, in it. Yeah, I I definitely agree. And when we come back from the break, we'll jump back into that discussion around the board and how and and just the role of money in in that ROI conversation. Um, right after the break, so we'll be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This podcast is supported by St. David's Foundation, a community-focused and equity-driven organization supporting health and well-being in Central Texas. To learn more about St. David's Foundation, visit www.stdavidsfoundation.org. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. 
In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture & Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests, or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. Thank you so much for joining us. We are back. Um, Our guest today is Travis Claybrooks. CEO and founder of the Rafa Institute. Now I'm worried that I'm not saying it correctly. You are all good. (laughs) Uh, Today we are discussing um, the pivotal role of Black nonprofit leaders. And, um, you know, and before the break, we were getting into the thick of why nonprofit leaders are so pivotal. And we discussed um, that, you know, we are so proximate to to the issues and we bring a unique perspective. And also just in the historical landscape, um, the nonprofit, you know, philanthropy, charitable industry is out of touch in general with the issues that of the of the people that they're serving. Um, they are not typically putting themselves out of out of business. Um, so let's jump back in. Um, we we definitely want to talk about you know this is a, a conversation that is driven by trauma, specifically historical trauma. And this means that you have uh, Black leaders who are a group who are vulnerable because of their own historical trauma and the historical landscape of their American experience. Um, And so can you talk a little bit about that? How has your own trauma or your own experience with historical trauma impacted the way that you lead or impacted your role in any way? Yeah, um, it's a really good Good question. Um, a good thought exercise because um, it, it it forces it forces me us to um, really touch base with how we lead in the presence of our own trauma um, and how our historical trauma lives today. And then how we interface with it. I mean, just the very thing of, you know, most of my funders are white people. It comes from money that white people amassed. Most of most of it. Um, and 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 most of the people, you know, if I'm thinking about foundations or corporations or even individual donors that I 
go to, they're white, they're white people. And um, it cannot be lost on how that feels for a black person who has lived with racial trauma in their own life, who has heard and sat around the, the kitchen table and listened to the stories of their parents and aunties and uncles historical trauma and you know and, and me in particular sat and interviewed you know my grandmother and my grandfather's sister to learn about just what was life like in the early 1900s as a black person in the rural south as sharecroppers and having to literally ask the white plantation owner to eat the food that we grew, you know, um, to be hungry when, and to never be able to be paid up to the plantation owner, right? Um, and this level of, this level of poverty is a part of my experience. The poverty my grandparents experienced, the life that they had is part of my experience today. And, and it's a part of my community's experience. And the problems that I am trying to solve as a nonprofit leader are the consequence of this experience in America. And here I am still having to ask white people for money to address the problem that maybe not the same white people, but that white people in this country, the white experience created. Man, that's hard. And to wrestle with the reality that relatively speaking, there is not as much black wealth to go to and ask. You know, in this city right now, how many black billionaires or or you know how many how many nine figure wealth black people can i go to and and ask for you know $50,000 or $100,000 from there are not there are not a lot at least that i know of now if you listening and you watching my email is info@rafa.org <laughs> reach out to me i would be i would love to have the conversation with you but that adds to the so it's both sides of it it's 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 recognizing that there's a reason that there is there's not a lot of black wealth in 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 this space and so it's it's challenging you know not to mention you know that's just on the side of talking about money but when you're talking about sitting and having policy conversations with with political leaders when you're talking about having, um, you know, I, we work in the early education space as well as in the criminal legal space. Um, you know, and Nashville is better off than most cities when it comes to our progress in these areas. Uh, in fact, I would, I would be remiss if I did not mention that <laughs> in March next month, the 14th, the 21st, and the 28th, three Thursdays in a row, uh, HBO, now known as Max, will be premiering a docu-series called Justice USA, where our city is featured, where Nashville, Tennessee is featured in its, in its progress around social justice. In fact, our organization, Refile Institute, is a part 
of of this documentary. Um, but yeah, we we fare better than many many cities um, in, in terms of of progress, and even still here, it is hard um, mm-hmm. to talk in those other spaces um, to advance ideas in these spaces. Um, so yeah, it's. Yes. An interesting intersection, the, the how how our own trauma, and you have to deal with it emotionally. You know, I got my wife. You know, PBS. You know, it is an emotional, it's an emotional hurdle that you have to jump every time to enter in these spaces and to have these conversations. Whether you're doing an ask, or you're trying to advance a policy, or you're trying to start a program, or it's it's more than just you know a political hurdle. There's a, there's a there's a lot of emotion that happens inside as a black leader um, yeah. that's even qualified. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about trauma, I mean, on the individual level, um, we know what the symptoms are. It's you know, it is um, all aspects, cognitively, emotionally, physically, and I definitely understand. You know, I have my family is from rural Texas. They own their own land, but they definitely struggled financially. And there's also this, you know, pushback of that we don't ask white people for money. We do for self. Obviously, this is a pushback on being oppressed and just. Uh, but I mean, that shows up for me in in fundraising. That shows up for me in not just money, but also asking for help. It is you know this need to project strength and self-sufficiency. I don't, I don't need the help of white people. Um, but in this work you do, because again, it, it's a, it is a, um, a monopoly in, <laughs> in, in this industry. And, uh, and it does have a connection. I do think about, you know, my ancestors when I, bring myself into this space and when I have to think through you know how we uh, you know really support others and maintain um the sustainability of an organization and how that is absolutely going directly in opposition of what my my body and feelings <laughs> want to do um and and how difficult that is and it's more than just you know fundraising is hard or having a board is hard now we're getting into, you know, this generational wound yeah. um, that is being activated. Um, and, and I can, no, go ahead. Let me, let me just tag on to, to that. It, it is, you know, I want to hasten to say that, you know, our organization and me personally, I enjoy many white co-conspirators who are, who will lay it all down. You know, some of them tell me that they're caramel. You know, they're not all the way white. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> they're caramel. You know, and, and so I want to. I do want to elevate that there are people who do get it. There are white people who get it, who understand it. They've been. There are supporters. They've been supporters, and they are supporters without query. They are supporters yes. with with um, that ex- that exude trust and confidence in me as a leader. Um, and there, there, and that's not just with money. There are people who have, you know, who, who have donated their expertise to me, to yes. mentor me, to, um, um, 
uh, and support me in those kinds of ways. Um, and again, that's needed charity. That is needed charity yeah. because I may not have seen a lot of business owners and here I am running a business where I could, you know, growing up that I could have just gotten the business since in the business head, you know? Um, and so to have people pour in that who have that experience um, is, is appreciated. So um, yeah. I don't want to, don't think I'm jumping on you, white people. <laughs> Not jumping on you. We're just stating, stating some stuff. We're talking some stuff. I mean, I think this is a good conversation to have because it is, it's complex. Yeah. It's not, it's not so straightforward. It is complex, even as I'm, you know, grappling with what it means to be a black nonprofit leader. I'm clearly in this position because a white woman thought that I would be a good successor for her. And so it's a complex issue, um, as all issues of race and, <laughs> and issues in this country the Quaker are. Dynamic. It's the Quaker dynamic, you know, mm -hmm. These white people help us escape from white people, <laughs> yes. you know, and so trusting the Quaker was complex. It was very complex, very complex. Yeah. And and so this conversation and then we're talking about mentors and supporters that we have. I mean, this kind of bleeds into the next question, which is, I mean, what does it look like to really invest in black nonprofit leaders? Um, what does it look like to support them? What is what is the way forward to ensure that one we have more more Black nonprofit leaders, but then also that once they are in the positions, that they are able to be sustained, that they are able to be successful and have good you know relationship with their stakeholders, with their board, with funders, and you know just navigate the space. What does that look like to support Black nonprofit leaders? Yeah. Um... Uh, yeah, I, it means so many things. You talk about complex. Um, it certainly means, I think it means investing in every way, financially, professionally, personally, in Black leaders. I think about my good friend, Morgan Wills. That man invests in me. He is a white nonprofit leader, um, former nonprofit leader. He's in a different space now, but that man invests in me personally, professionally, and financially. Um, I think that's critical. Um, I think it's trusting Black leadership. It is trusting that we know what we're doing and, and that, we, that we have clarity on what needs to be done. And that may be different from what you're used to if you're a white leader who's made millions of dollars. It may be different. Um, we may not be trying to make millions of dollars. We may be trying to do something different. And so the rules are different. The, the ways that the, the, the way the operating thing needs to happen may be different. Um, and so while there are business, clearly business elements that, that must exist, there are also other things that must be considered in terms of of what it is that we're doing. So trust, trust us. And I think um, they're, they're, I think black leaders who are doing good, strong work, who are doing better, who are faring well, have to reach back and 
invest in other black leaders. You know, I, you know, I run a nonprofit that, you know, has enjoyed a million dollar budget for the last three or four years. That's small compared to say, you know, I'm gonna call some names like, you know, maybe Equity Alliance who, you know, their budget may be a five or $10 million, I don't know. Um, and, but yet it's bigger than, than maybe Moms Over Murder whose budget may be a hundred thousand dollars. I don't know. Um, so we have to, I, I love concepts like the village and, you know, you know, what Erica Burnett is doing and what Ron Johnson started and how do we invest in, in, in black leadership from black leaders? Cause I can talk to you about, we can talk together, you know, we can talk together about what it means to be a, a black leader, both in practical terms and in philosophical and, and ethos and ethos terms. And I think on that front, I would add that we have to protect, and, and, and you may think that I'm saying this for, for a particular reason, but let me tell you why I'm saying this. Um, we have to protect Black women leaders in the nonprofit space um, because Black women are at the bottom of the totem, totem pole in terms of um, who's the first to feel the disparity? Who's the first to feel it? Black women are. Uh, my maleness gives me a certain privilege that, that you don't have. Um, and certainly a white female's whiteness gives her more than I got. And uh, certainly we know, we know all about the white male. Um, if we can figure out how to protect and promote and advance Black women in nonprofit leadership, I think we will solve it for everybody else. I call it the, the, the you know, the wheelchair ramp syndrome. If, if we can figure out how to solve it for the person who has the, the most disability, if you will, if I could use that term, then, you know, not only do we solve it for the person who's in the wheelchair, the person who's on the walker, but also the person who's got the baby carriage and the person who's got, you know, uh, 10 bags of luggage. Um, it works for so many more uh, uh, people. And so I think um, making sure that Black women in particular have, and this is both, you know, and Black women are so much more brilliant in so many different ways than everybody else. And, and that's not a joke. That's truth. That's fact. We need more Black women on our boards. Um, um, we need more Black CEOs of nonprofits, Black, black females. Um, they figure shit out in ways that, uh, I don't know, maybe I can't say that. I'm sorry. Beat me out. They figure stuff out. Y'all figure stuff out in, in, in very, very unique ways unique ways. And um, so I think those are ways to make us thrive um, as a community of Black nonprofit, um, nonprofit, nonprofit leaders. Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I, I agree when it comes to um, Black women in, in nonprofit and not just in nonprofit work, but the reason why I agree, and again, I'm being funny with the bias, but the reason why I agree is because um, Black women, when I have people reach out to me and to talk about their nonprofit goals and what they want to address, what they tend to want to address is so pivotal to the community. Um, because of that intersectionality, it is mostly about children and supporting young mothers 
mm-hmm. and um, supporting early education. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's just the real critical issues. And that's why I think, you know, that's why I agree with what <laughs> with what you have to say around um, supporting Black women leaders. And um, and so, you know, when it comes to, like the practical, you know, that's coaching, that's mentoring, that's, you know, obviously spending, you know, putting your money where your mouth is. Um, and it's definitely um, creating an environment where more people feel like they can jump in as well. So, you know, many people who want to get into the nonprofit space, they're uh, thrown off or have imposter syndrome just from the administrative aspects of it or, you know, having to talk in front of someone. So what does it mean to, you know, support people in many different ways? And, and uh, some of it is that's the psychological barriers um, to help leaders to build soft skills, to build presentation skills, to um, become knowledgeable about the process so they feel comfortable and confident uh, in the space. And, and, you know, there's so many ways to, to support us. I mean, we're drawing to a close, but I want to give you some space to, you know, have your, your final words that you want to share with the audience and definitely um, how they can contact you or, you know, how we can find out more about the Rafa Institute. Yeah. yeah. Um, of course, you can find us, you know, on the web, um, social media, Instagram, Facebook, um, LinkedIn, um, at Rafa Institute, um, on LinkedIn, at Rafa Institute Justice is Healing. Um, our website, rafah.org, R-A-P-H-A-H.org. Um, info at rafah.org. Um, check out the check out the docu series that's coming up on on Max. It'll be streaming as well. Um, um, we are wanting to expand um, both in breadth and in depth. Um, we are, we are wanting to do that. We are launching in Memphis, Shelby County with our restorative justice diversion work. We are, uh, we have a burgeoning partnership in Lauderdale County in North Alabama. Been meeting with the district attorney there. Um, we, um, we, we think that the work that we're involved in, the problems that we're trying to solve, both in the early education space, the housing space, the, the healthcare space, the social support space, economic opportunity space, really require us to be bigger because our foes are big and well-organized. Um, the policymakers, the systems and structures are big. They're big structures. And I think uh, I think for many, I think our nonprofit sector is too splintered, but we need more conglomerates. We need bigger nonprofits to address these big problems that have big budgets, that have capacity to really engage in political influence and political power, um, to galvanize support, to raise and manage large amounts of money that it takes and to coordinate it. Um, I think we need, I think we need Bigger. Now, there are some really trusted friends that disagree vehemently with me, um, but they haven't convinced me uh, off of this one yet. Um, so that's something that we're experimenting um, um, uh, with, uh, I, it growing growing larger. And that means better. It's not just bigger. It's, it's being better um, and thereby becoming bigger. Um, we've had really good results with our pilots, and that's why we've been able to grow um, bigger. 
Um, so yeah, that's um, I think that's what's that's what's next. Um, I would like to personally engage in more um, training and mentoring around you know nonprofit leadership. Uh, my niece is trying to start a nonprofit in in North and Charlotte, and uh, I'm taking her on and mentoring mentoring her. Um, I think I have a lot to offer her. Um, and would love to go on the road with you, Ingrid, um, and uh, hit the hit the non-chicken circuit. <laughs> um, and I, I I think we'd be a powerful powerful couple together uh, doing yeah. some of this. I I agree. I definitely agree with that. And I think it's what you're saying about kind of consolidating and efforts and. Because you're correct, the the forces that we are pushing back against are very well organized, very well funded, um, and have clear marching orders. Mm-hmm. And we don't have the time to to be splintered or um, to be divided uh, around ideology or any other any other reason. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us today. I think this has been a very enlightening conversation and thank you to our audience for joining us and we will see you next week thanks for listening to the show today we hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience join us every thursday at 1 p.m pacific time we wish you a beautiful week